Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Republican Party was a creation of the struggle over slavery, and within the party, the so-called radical Republicans pushed for not just abolition, but eventually the establishment of racial equality, even at the cost of the disregard of political norms and violence that flared finally to the extent of the Civil War itself. How lasting were their gains? Were they worth it? How should we view the willingness to use political extremism in a good cause? We'll ask these questions and others of author Dr. Leanna Keith, who has written, When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight, as has been the case through all of the year 2021, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Safety Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, but hoping to return there someday, and in the meantime, uh, broadcasting safely uh, away from the pandemic. I hope you are keeping yourself safe as well. I will not be speaking for the World Talk Radio uh, Civil War Talk Radio uh, annex that I'm living in here, nor will I speak for ECU, nor for anybody else, nor will my guests do the same. Uh, we're all on our own hook, as always. It is the uh, 10th day of March 2021 as we record this, and the uh, today is Spring Festival Day at ECU, so a happy Spring Festival to everyone. This is in lieu of spring break, which ordinarily would be taking place this week or next. Uh, But this year, the administration decided uh, 
that if we had a spring break, the students would almost certainly use it to go to beaches, crowd together, fail to wear masks, interact with each other closely, and then bring back uh, different strains of the pandemic here to Pitt County and to their parents and grandparents. And knowing students, it's almost certainly what they would do. Uh, So we redid the schedule. We had a longer winter break, but no spring break. Uh, And if you're familiar recalling your own college experience, the the rhythm of the spring semester is one of coming back from the winter holidays, start working, it's gray, it's dark, uh, it's gloomy outside. You just keep working and working. And by February, uh, this is a grim statistic, but but suicide rates go up around the country at at colleges. Uh, And then you fall a little further behind each week and professors fall further behind in their lectures and grading. But then you get that week to pull it all back together and students go to the beach, but faculty catch up on their grading, get their lectures back in shape, get the syllabus caught up to date. uh, And then you're ready to dive in for that last stretch, which includes April, the most challenging month of the year where you have annual reports and everything else well this year we don't we've got all that gloom and doom we've been working at it for this last seven or eight weeks and i've been falling further and further behind in my lectures uh and my grading and we don't have a spring break we do have spring festival the administration announced there would be no classes this one day but since we're all teaching online asynchronously, it's it's quite invisible. Um, you still have to get the same number of things done in a week. You're just not supposed to do them on a Wednesday in theory. But here we are talking uh, together on a Wednesday night. So it's happening anyway. Uh, Spring Festival is, it, is, is certainly to be put into quotation marks. Uh, but happy Spring Festival nonetheless. Uh, there is good news on campus. ECU baseball once again defeated uh, their rivals from Duke yesterday, the second time this season, in a home-and-home series. So uh, I tease my friends and listeners over at Duke about this each year, but uh, ECU doesn't get to win that many big-time games, so we're happy about that one. Uh, Teaching continues with the... While I'm just giving a litany of interesting things that are that are on my mind teaching-wise, um, one of them is the the technological challenges. And I'm sure you're facing this in your work, or if you're fortunate to be retired in your communications with family, which is everybody seems to have a different way of doing this. All the meetings that I have to attend each week administratively are held on Microsoft Teams, which I'm gradually getting accustomed to. But all the meetings I hold with students uh, individually are done with WebEx, which is a completely different program. But all the lectures that I record for the students are done with Studio on Canvas. And all the meetings I have with the rest of the world, with human beings uh, outside of work, are done on Zoom. It seems to be what everybody uses. And then right now I'm talking to you on Skype. Uh, World Talk Radio is still using the old reliable which i've been doing for you know a decade and i know how pretty much know how it works notwithstanding the fact every 
show begins with an adventure of, is the guest connected? Am I connected? Have I done everything right? Fortunately, Andrew, the engineer at World Talk Radio, knows what he's doing and gets the show to work every week. But I was thinking historically, what if this were true with Alexander Graham Bell, that instead of one telephone, there were eight or nine different proprietary telephone systems and when you called someone up, they'd say, oh, wait, i got to hang up this phone and call you on a different phone. Uh, didn't work that way, uh, probably for the better. Well, enough of historical speculation. We can don't need to speculate on what's happening next on this show because you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, and there you will see what Mark Gaffney has published for us, or on the Impediments of War Facebook page, you'll see the same information. And there we find out that next week, uh, Brian Jordan will be returning to the show. His new book is called A Thousand May Fall, Life, Death, and Survival in the Union Army. It looks very interesting. On the 24th of March, uh, on my, we are not going to have a live show. On my personal calendar, I've written fake spring break in big letters, the university is not taking a spring break, but Civil War Talk Radio will take one. So get your uh, little umbrellas to put in your drinks and pretend you're on a beach for an hour at some point during the week of March 24th when you would ordinarily be listening to the show. On the 31st, uh, guest TBA. We'll get that squared away sooner rather than later. On April 7th, William Marvel comes back to the show. He has a new book about Fitzjohn Porter called Radical Sacrifice. Again, looks extremely interesting. On the 14th of April, John Madison, A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. Then we've got Lauren Thompson on the 21st, a book on a topic that I'm amazed there's been nothing written about. It's called Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. On the 28th of April, James Oakes comes back to the show. Always good to have Jim on. His new book is The Crooked Path to Abolition, Abraham Lincoln and the Anti-Slavery Constitution. On May 5th, our good friend TBA returns. TBA, always a welcome guest. And I'm stealing that amusing remark from the ECU Pirates baseball announcer. Whenever the other team's pitcher is listed as TBA, he says, TBA is having a great year. And just to wrap it up, April, no, May 12th, Barbara Tomlin, Life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. And hopefully on the 19th, we'll all be traveling with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours. Uh, please keep your eye on their website. A lot of you had contacted me about the possibility of traveling together last May before the pandemic struck. And I hope uh, they'll be able to travel again this May, and I'll see you there. So lots going on, but let's get to our guest tonight, uh, who has written, When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. Her name is Leanna Keith. Dr. Keith, are you there? Yes, I am. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, thank you for, for joining me. Glad to have you here. Um, I'm always interested in what guests do for a day job when they're not uh, professors, and the dust jacket on your book says you teach history at the Collegiate School in New York City. What What is the Collegiate School? Well, uh, you know, as a history teacher, it's a great gratification for me that it is one of the oldest schools, if not the oldest school in the United States. We state our founding date as 1628, 
from the Dutch era in NYC, and it's a school for boys, uh, very college prep oriented, and I've been teaching there for 16 years. Wow, 1628, that makes Harvard 1636 look like, you know, just a expansion team. Um, and that gave me a chance to, to, to mention that I have a degree from Harvard, something I try to do every show, but sometimes I, sometimes I forget. Um, so, so you've been there 16 years, um, the, uh, and it's a, a college prep, so this is K through, K through 12 or, or high school? K age through 12. Only. I teach in the high school. Okay. So what, um, you, what's a, your educational background? How, how did you get to the collegiate school? Well, that's a good question because I have a PhD in history, but when I studied, my focus was on American foreign relations history, uh, and specifically my dissertation was about the Dominican Republic and our intervention in the Kennedy and Johnson years in the 1960s. And uh, I came to New York City, uh, not sure what I wanted to do, but fell in with some writers, and they said, what do you want to write your book about? And I said, oh, I, I know a lot about the Dominican Republic intervention of 1965. And they said, no, don't write about that. Uh, <laughs> find a subject with broader appeal. And that's how I came to be interested in the Civil War, which is a little ironic. As, uh, as someone who grew up in Alabama, I, I always stayed as far away from Civil War topics as I could. Uh, and uh, I, I found myself drawn back, right? Like I've heard it said, the magnet south. Uh, and I have enjoyed this course of study very much now for, for almost 20 years. Now, the experience of having a PhD but working outside the academy always interests me. I worked in a museum for nine years before I came to East Carolina, and there's there there was at one time a, a fairly strong, I, I would say, uh, prejudice is the word, snobbery, uh, within the profession. Uh, if you were a trained doctoral historian, but you weren't at a university, you weren't a real historian. And I, I think we've moved a long way from that. I think the, the public history has pushed us in the right direction. But do you ever encounter that? Do you ever go to a conference or talk to someone and get that, oh? I don't think so. You know, I think that there's a uh, an oddball charm to having high school <laughs> teachers participate. Uh, and I also feel like I've been very welcomed by uh, historians on Twitter, for example, who really try to make a point of building an inclusive community. Um, I think that it's uh, uh, not always been so easy for me to find people to, to read chapters, for example. And that kind of work, I think, is you know, that kind of uh, uh, chum, chummery uh, I think is a little more available uh, to professors but I cannot complain about the kind of welcome that I have received from from professors but, well I'd say and it goes the other direction that the profession desperately needs the input of people who have more contact with uh, the, the real world so to speak and uh, you know people who teach in high schools and work in museums and libraries and do things outside uh, the campus it, it's is a, a critical perspective for for the rest of the profession. Uh, so you got interested in this, uh, it, as you say, partly your southern roots calling back to you, and partly here's where the readers are. Um, what about the radical Republicans in particular? What brought you to that topic? Well, my first book was the Colfax Massacre, and it was about a terrible. Uh, 
race riot perpetrated by the Knights of the White Camellia, white supremacists in Louisiana in 1873. And I was amazed in that story by the really heroic actions of certain Republicans who put their lives on the line and and literally fought, right, black and white uh, men in, in the case of Colfax. Uh, and I really wanted to learn more about a group of people that was willing to take those kind of risks. Well, this, it, it must be frustrating to you then, as it is to any historian, when uh, you see contemporary political debates going on, particularly you know ill-informed people going back and forth on Twitter, let's say, uh, and someone says, "Hey, the Democrats used to be the racists, and the Republicans weren't." Um, when I read that, I just want to go "duh" in a loud voice. Uh, <laughs> of course, things have changed. Do you get that kind of commentary directed at your work? Well, you know, as a teacher, I have to always start with the building blocks, and I have to be really explicit. So I'm accustomed, in a way, to explaining the way Democrats used to be uh, the party of white supremacy, and the Republicans used to wear the white hats. Uh, and uh, I, I, I have had to figure out, you know, what are the sort of junctures at which the parties change their roles. And also to develop, you know, my line is, that t- t- today's Republicans, uh, for all their faults, are not nearly as uh, as vicious as the Democrats of the Reconstruction era, uh, and that you know it's not been a complete role reversal. Mm-hmm. No, they're, they're, no one is using the the rhetoric. Uh, no one responsible, at least, is using the rhetoric certainly of of Reconstruction era or or even Civil War and pre Civil War race baiting that that was common, obviously. Well, I want to ask specifically about then these radical Republicans, uh, who they are, where they came from, what they did. We're going to take a short break first, though, and come back in just a minute and talk further with our guest tonight, Leanna Keith. She's the author of When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Leanna Keith, author of When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. So, uh, Dr. Keith, Leanna, if I may, um, uh, who who are, who were the radical Republicans? Were there non-radical Republicans? Who Who is this group? Well, it's a great question, because in a lot of ways, the radicals are older as a as a, a faction than the Republican Party itself. Many of them had their uh, early careers in the Free Soil Movement or in the Liberty Party um, and only aligned themselves with the Republican Party after 1854, when at that time the party was very much a big tent that included not only folks uh, like uh, the famous radicals Charles Sumner uh, and uh, uh, Ohio's um, Ben Wade, but also uh, real conservatives, including those representing slaveholding states like the Blair family from Missouri. And so that kind of big tent uh, meant that Republicans had to negotiate, the radicals have to negotiate their way among the factions. Uh, But what I suggest is that they're actually quite good at this kind of factional maneuvering uh, and that they, in a lot of ways, lead the party, especially as the war gets underway. So let's let me put uh, or invite us both to put cards on the table here. Uh, reading this book, it's very clear that it has a strong authorial point of view. Uh, uh, as you said in our first segment, the the Republicans of this era wear the white hats in the sense of being the good guys, conforming more to values that most Americans would espouse today. Certainly, in terms of racial equality. Uh, so there's no there's no question who who are the protagonists uh, of your book or or even who are the the heroes of your book and not all historians are as frank in making clear that distinction um, some will will attempt to claim a stance of objectivity that was once universally aspired to. I think there's a lot of challenges to that today, whether that's even possible or even desirable. Um, but but this, the, the, you, you don't pull any punches about where you're coming from in terms of, of who the good guys are here. <laughs> yeah, one of my uh, graduate professors once said, uh, extra adjectives will be the death of Leanna. Uh, because I, I do sort of put it out there, you know, and I do think this is one of the ways where uh, not being a university historian, not being trained as a Civil War historian at the university has made me more, more, more free, uh, more liberal, uh, perhaps too, uh, too uninhibited um, uh, to express my opinion. Uh, but I've done it now, and, and, and there's nothing I can really do about it. I, I've said it, and I believe it, and I think I, have the, I, think I can back it up. Well, it, it's if this book had come to me just off the shelf at Barnes and Noble, my first thought might be, you know, well, I don't know about that. Um, when you glance at the back and you see uh, Manisha Sinha, Eric Foner, uh, 
Thomas to Black, American Historical Review. Um, clearly, this is, and, and then you read it, uh, it, it's it's entertaining, first of all. Readers should know that. Uh, I enjoyed reading this book. But it's also you know, extremely thoroughly researched and, and referenced. It, it's a professional history book. Uh, but I guess having the freedom not to be looking at a tenure committee over your shoulder, for example, uh, I guess you're saying that's allowed you to, to have a point of view. I called it like I saw it. So, know, to uh, me, it seems like these guys were really participating in something, really making something of their lives, you know, really building something. Uh, and since we know the way the story ends, and we know that in the Reconstruction period, they're going to go on to really implement these enduring changes and that the radicals will take the lead in changing our Constitution and, and pioneering the idea of black office holding and voting. Uh, you know, to me, it really didn't seem like too controversial of a call to say that uh, these guys were, you know, achievers, you know, in the spirit of the civil rights movement of the 20, 20th century and uh, the 21st century as well. Now, they're highly controversial in their own lifetime, certainly. You, you start out uh, with the chapter before the war showing how the Republican Party comes together in opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And there's certainly a lot of difference within the party as well as between the party and, and others uh, in the American body politic. Uh, at, no one is more symbolic of that, I guess, than John Brown. But you, you point out here John Brown isn't himself a, didn't call himself a Republican, but he certainly created a situation where Republicans had to respond to him. Well, he certainly piques the interest of the radical Republicans who come to you know, truly revere him and to invest heavily in his movement uh, and later after his death to promote his legacy as an example uh, in a way that I think bleeds over into the sort of larger phenomenon of you know, John Brown's body and sort of civil war uh, as the ultimate expression of this kind of uh, campaign that begins with Brown uh, to overcome at whatever cost. You make the point several times that the Civil War really begins well before Fort Sumter. You look at at Bleeding Kansas and talk about uh, conflict there, but also about uh, resistance sponsored or or supported by radical Republicans throughout the North to the fugitive slave, uh, to enforcement of fugitive slave laws. Uh, Can you talk about that? Right. Well, it is one of the ways that uh, the radical faction of the party cuts its teeth, you know, and, and develops its sort of organizational ethos that a lot of these participants had common uh, experiences in vigilance committees and taking part in rescues, you know, uh, which had a courtroom dimension, right? The Fugitive Slave Act commissions were staged in courtrooms. And so for lawyers and political types, uh, hanging around the courtroom actually becomes a way of uh, keeping tabs on the enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act and, and presenting themselves uh, to try to interrupt these renditions in movements that spill over into uh, you know, publicity led by newspapers and printers and circulating flyers and the, uh, the assembly of 
large groups or even mobs uh, led by, in many cases, you know, political activists who uh, are willing to take up arms, right? Willing to put a, uh, a battering ram through a courthouse door. And so that kind of violence takes place in, in repetition in a way that I say, you know, helps to develop a warlike spirit and a kind of a, a military record for some of these folks who have put their lives on the line, endangered themselves, been injured, sometimes been killed, you know, as part of these kinds of, kill, or have killed themselves, right, as part of these anti-slave uh, act rendition movements. When you describe some of these events where, where someone has been you know, taken into custody by federal marshals or people acting under the aegis of the Fugitive Slave Act, and then a group of activists comes, tries to get them out either through legal means, and when that doesn't work, through extra-legal means, like you say, breaking down the courthouse door, breaking in, taking someone out of jail. Uh, it's not hard to sympathize with them. Clearly, the law itself was unjust, and slavery itself is obviously uh, what it is. So the the sympathy for those doing this is, is obvious, but you must have written this, uh, you know, well before January 6th of 2021, where we see political violence being used today for very different ends, certainly. Uh, does that give you pause that once you start on the road of political violence for a good or bad cause, that, that there are great risks ahead. Well, I would say that, uh, you know, current events have sometimes, you know, borne out uh, or replicated some of the patterns of behavior that I discovered in my research. And, and, and frankly, in terms of prophecy, I, 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 I've seen enough. Uh, I, I, I don't yeah. think we need to go any farther, uh, and uh, I don't feel that we are on a course towards <laughs> a, an 1860s-style confrontation. But certainly some of the same uh, lack of inhibition is part of our political culture today, somewhat on the left, and now we see also uh, in a pronounced way on the extreme right. Uh, I think the sense of panic that motivates uh, well, has motivated the left and is now motivating the extreme right. I feel uh, that does mirror the kind of uh, sensationalism of the 1850s as people really felt like they were building towards a kind of reckoning. Um, I certainly do see those parallels, but I also don't see, what I don't see is that any of the issues that divide today's political movements have the weight of... Uh, of the slavery crisis, you know, that there's nothing that touches the same moral level, lever as, you know, enslavement. Um, and I would say, you know, in the book, one of the things that I, I, I describe Republicans calling themselves wolf killers, right? That they have mm-hmm. killed the wolf that has stalked uh, Americans in, in slavery. And, and, and the issue that I think can be compared to the wolf today is only climate change, right? And I don't see that either side is aligning itself around that issue with the same intensity of the 1850s conflict. That's, that's extremely interesting. The, uh, the, it, I, I can recall, you know, 10 years ago teaching these topics and, and making that argument to students that there's nothing 
that divides Americans today that's remotely as intense as the slavery crisis was. And I've been less and less comfortable making that argument as time has passed, and I'm, I'd like to make that argument again. I'd like to be able to say confidently there's no, nothing as divisive as that was. But I do think you're correct, though, that obviously slavery was, you know, brought us to getting three-quarters of a million men killed, and, and we're certainly not there uh, in contemporary society. Let me ask about um, Abraham Lincoln, because he, he fits into any narrative about the anti-slavery world, and he's a Republican, but he's not a radical Republican. Uh, how does he interact with the radicals? Well, you know, everyone loves to say that Lincoln is the moderate and Lincoln uh, is the conservative. Sometimes you, you hear him described. Mm-hmm. And yet in my research, I found him again and again in dialogue with the radical faction of the party, uh, not only in terms of building programs that uh, he shared their uh, enthusiasm for, like uh, arming black soldiers or you know, even emancipation itself when done on the terms that he thought were appropriate, um, but also in that he uh, he enjoyed and benefited from their advocacy, you know, with a sense of humor, right? Sometimes he uh, he complained, right? These guys are the unhandiest devils in the world, you know, but they are pointing their faces towards Zion, you know, and he and he wanted to stimulate that kind of discussion during the war, especially as you know anti-slavery goals became the goals of of the the Union um, during the Civil War. He sees a lot of value in stirring up discussion of all kinds. You know, he wants them to go out there and lean into it and get Americans talking about it. So I think that he's he he sees the radical uh, rhetoric as as constructive and helpful. And I think that we have at least one example of him uh, liking, at a personal level, radical Republicans. In this case, uh, he and Charles Sumner had a, a friendly relationship. And an appreciation, right? Sumner, for all of his, you know, sort of uh, stuck-up erudition, um, he really got Lincoln's humor. Uh, and Lincoln, at the same time, believed that Sumner and the others were playing a, a useful role. He, he said, uh, you know, you guys were only six weeks ahead of me, you know, and didn't you notice how I caught up? And didn't you notice how once I made a commitment to something, I never looked back, you know? So I feel like Lincoln's radicalism uh, hasn't gotten enough attention, and here I am being too bold, you know, but I want to say that he uh, he benefited from these movements and he used them uh, and that they played a big part in his uh, leadership in the war. I, I, I think that, that quote about that you, you are just six weeks ahead of me, uh, you know, it, it really captures both his, his sympathy for the radical movement and his frustration that uh, because they certainly condemned him frequently when he was in the White House as being too slow. Uh, but you make the point that he was a extremely effective, not to say devious, politician who uh, used indirection and, and uh, other sleights of hand to get attention away from where he wanted it and then accomplished its goals. Uh, you mentioned black soldiers. That's certainly one of the key elements of the national transition that takes place during the Civil War and, and leads into Reconstruction. Uh, and that happens in a number of stages. It starts with uh, some people that we've 
all read about David Hunter in South Carolina. Uh, but you also mentioned people like uh, General Phelps in New Orleans, who is less well known. Uh, is this a grassroots movement within the army to to recruit black soldiers that that, that uh, we don't really know about? Well, I think it is quite hard to pinpoint the exact origins of uh, forming black regiments, and I I I think based on my own research that it's something that that springs up simultaneously in at least four different locations, right? That that's what they're doing in Kansas where, you know, uh, personnel is an issue and they're not only recruiting African-Americans, but also Native Americans into their uh, sort of raw uh, forces. It happens, as you say, in the occupation of New Orleans, uh, where it's such an obvious move. Um, And uh, it's also similarly in the Department of the South, where David Hunter is in command, you know, the idea that there are these untapped masses of, uh, of uh, strong men uh, who can serve uh, is irresistible to David Hunter. And then I also uh, find, the, find a sort of a black captain of these movements, or at least one captain, uh, in coastal North Carolina, where William Henry Singleton, where Abraham Galloway and others form their own regiment, you know, uh, drilling with cornstalks um, and help and, and manage to get the attention of the high command and even Lincoln himself, who meets Singleton in this wonderful encounter and says, uh, keep your society together. We're hoping to find a use for it, even before he sees a path to creating formal black regiments. Yeah, that that's right in our neck of the woods here in eastern North Carolina, down at Newburn, where... Uh where Galloway and Singleton and others were operating and, and, as you say, organizing units outside of the United States uh, sanctioned just to be ready to go when when the word finally did come down. Uh, We're going to take another short break, talk more about uh, emancipation itself and the the course and effect of radical Republicans on the Civil War. That's the subject of the book, When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. The author is Leanna Keith. She's our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Dr. Leanna Keith, author of When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. Uh, this book, Leanna, I want to say is one that uh, very much grew on me as I was reading it. One of the things I really liked about it was the organization of chapters, uh, 18 of them, their length was just right. And I don't know if this is, again, something from not being required to write it for a dissertation committee or a tenure committee, but uh, it, 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 there's something about the, the right size of a chapter that you can read it, absorb it, enjoy it, and then move on to the next that affects how much one enjoys the book, or how much I do at least, and this this one really worked. Um, Having said that, I, I, I want to. Uh, we were talking about military experience, uh, African Americans joining the war effort at the end of the last segment. And I want to push on that. At one point, you're, you're talking, I think, about David Hunter and others. And you say that their willingness to recruit black soldiers, even though it was not authorized uh, at the time, was an example of, of them following. You know, natural law ahead of military regulations of doing what was right, even if it wasn't permitted, and that stuck out because in 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 history, you know, there are many examples of people doing dreadful things because God told them to. They knew what was right, and uh, that we look at them and say, "Well, those are fanatics. Uh, they how do they know what's right, and and why can't they follow the law like the rest of us?" Um, how far does the end justify the means in that, that question just keeps coming up throughout the book because the, the means, the ends are clearly good ones. Uh, and they achieve those ends as you pointed out in the first segment, uh, ultimately with through reconstruction, uh, how far are they justified in going in, in breaking regulations or even laws to get there? Well, I, I certainly think it's tough, and, and, and I, I hope I didn't convey that I felt like uh, there's a moral right to enlist black soldiers, but it's easy to quote uh, the participants in these events, especially Phelps, who's uh, mm-hmm. you know, very outspoken about the immorality of the policies that allowed slavery to remain intact in the occupied parts of Louisiana uh, and feels a, a moral imperative to... Uh, give them a better opportunity as laborers, at least to dedicate their hard labor to the armed overthrow of the system that oppresses them. Um, But throughout my study, I I often ask the question that you are asking, you know, how do I feel about this? Uh, An an example would be about, uh, to to step back from the Civil War for a moment, their response to the Dred Scott decision, which of course we denounce as such a uh, an aberration in the history of the law and, you know, some of the most despicable language uh, in jurisprudence. Um, and the response of radicals in state legislatures and other settings is to uh, defy the Supreme Court. 
Uh, and as someone who lives in a society governed by laws, um, I don't feel that that's a, a great recourse. Um, and even Lincoln, for his moderation, you know, is mm-hmm. going to uphold Dred Scott either to, he's going to denounce him as partisan in the 1850s. And as president, he's going to allow his attorney general to essentially formally disregard it uh, in a statement that recognizes the citizenship of African-Americans. You know, alongside the violence, alongside the killing, which is real, the stockpiling of weapons, which is extreme, um, I see a lot to deplore in the actions of Civil War era radicals, um, however much, you know, the end uh, does align with my own values and, and also with the kind of the momentum that, that we seek in, in, in American history. Um, no, go ahead. War, though, you know, war being what it is uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the fact that, that their struggle culminates in this most terrible war um, is part of what makes it does temper my enthusiasm uh, for radicalism. However much I may agree that uh, the other paths towards slavery's overthrow seemed less likely to succeed than the Civil War. Like, in retrospect, it's easy to see that this was the fastest way uh, to end the crisis. It, it, it is, it's an eternal question, certainly. How far do you go? And, and Dred Scott's a good example. You know, do you, what, what obedience do we owe to a just law? Uh, one of the interesting observations you make when you're talking about the war itself is that uh, one of the dramatic effects of what the radical or evidences of what the radical Republicans accomplish is the transformation of moderates. Uh, and you, you use U.S. Grant as an example uh, in the Vicksburg campaign. His, his attitude changes, and this you 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 would you say that this is a result of radical policies being put into play? I think that one point that that distinguishes my story from other other Civil War accounts and other stories about Republicans of the Civil War era is that I try to present the army and the whole federal bureaucracy as uh, a field in which radicals uh, play a play a big role, uh, and I think it's especially vivid that. War ends are served very much by the radical means, and that the interest of uh, the armies and the war effort becomes very closely aligned with the fate of African Americans in the South, and with uh, efforts to to improve their lot. Right, what was good for Black people was good for the Union War effort, and with his clear vision. Uh, you know, sort of unfettered, you know, not so uh, filled with opinions uh, and self-regard, you know, as most people with a uh, political agenda. Grant, it, he recognizes it in such a, such a complete way, right? If we're to believe uh, John Eaton's account, his first uh, commissioner for freedmen, uh, he, he seemed to perceive all in one go that, uh, not only could the war make useful citizens out of people who had been enslaved, uh, but that they could become soldiers and that their military service would become the foundation for, for citizenship. And he doesn't say, you know, for the political domination of the South, but I think that it's quite clear to many radicals during the war that uh, black voting is a way to follow on the military successes and help to 
make them more permanent. Well, you, you have a chapter with a title, Nation Building, which is really a political phrase from the 1990s uh, to the present, uh, for better or worse. Is this what radical Republicans are thinking of doing with the, uh, with the American South, rebuilding it as a different nation? Well, and not only the South, right? I think their vision is one of, uh, well, a new birth of freedom, for the entire nation, uh, and one that would uh, require new laws, new ways of thinking, new categories of citizenship, uh, and really, uh, especially in the South, to break through the culture that had enabled a slaveholding aristocracy um, to, to make the South more like the rest of the country uh, does require rebuilding. And since they are uh, on the cusp, or, or, or even in wartime, uh, supervising an occupation of the South, in which many institutions, certainly, you know, courts are not in session, and legislatures are defunct, and, you know, they're having to serve in the role of, uh, of government uh, in the various military departments, um, that does create an imperative to create new practices new institutions and new values, and that begins to happen in wartime, and as we know, in Reconstruction, they build on that. One of the other ways that you show the society being transformed is that the the radical Republican movement uh, is not an exclusively white male movement. Uh, Women play a substantial role, and you don't isolate them in a separate chapter, here are the women, and then the norm is men, but but they appear throughout the book, can you talk about uh, examples of that? Well, it's fortunate, you know, because I never did like that form of women's history. You know, as someone who has used a lot of American history textbooks over the years, I hate the little add-ons, you know, here's the women and here are the black yeah. people and here are the Spanish speakers, you know. And, uh, and, and so I, I am grateful that the examples of engaged women are so well coordinated with the acts that are, you know, viewed as the more mainstream uh, political figures and men engaged in politics. And, of course, the most important of these is Jesse Fremont, who's very much, you know, the sort of leading female political figure of her time, who really sees herself as having a special destiny to speak for women and to women, um, and who also is very motivated um, by the slavery question, truly abolitionist in her view, and as the wife of the first Republican nominee, whose aspirations to become president, whose aspirations to make himself into uh, the great emancipator never go away, you know, she's actually in a position to engage uh, on the issue with real concrete results, especially during Fremont's tenure as the commander of the Department of the West in St. Louis. She's definitely the mastermind behind his uh, failed Emancipation Proclamation of September 1861. Yeah, I would say she gets a, a, a I want to say surprising, she, she gets a larger proportion of, of uh, coverage in this book than in many others, and, and you show why she deserves that. I think that's one of the many interesting uh, aspects here. We have just a few minutes left. I want to talk about the, the legacy of this. So we, we, we've suggested Reconstruction is where transformations occur. You have the two uh, amendments, 
the three, including the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution, that change society. Uh, do we count the, the radical Republicans overall as as succeeding? Well, uh, what was it that Mao said about the French Revolution? You know, uh, I, I'll let you know <laughs> when it stops <laughs> happening. You know, I'll let you know when it stops happening. Uh, when we stop trying to fulfill some of the goals that they articulated before and during the Civil War uh, about what it means to be a citizen of the United States, how to protect voting rights for African-Americans, how to extend voting rights into the African-American community, uh, you know, what does equality look like on the ground? Um, obviously, they're, by a lot of measures, the biggest losers, right? Because they are not only... Uh, in the lifetimes, I mean, it's true that many of the most important players in my story die in the late 1860s and in the 1870s, right? But, but the, many of them are, you know, losers in their own lifetime. And then to say that they are disregarded or repudiated by subsequent generations is really an understatement, isn't it? So um, they, are, uh, they are both uh, winners and losers, right? And seers, right? They are, that's what Manisha Sinha said, right? Seers of interracial democracy. Uh, I don't think we've arrived at the end point of their journey. That's a, an interesting point. When, uh, uh, when Lincoln tells the black delegation that he wants to persuade to accept colonization and he tells them uh, you know, that he doesn't see how the two races can live in harmony uh, people often point that out as Lincoln's racism, and one response is, well, we haven't proven him wrong yet. Um, mm. So uh, these these issues are certainly still with us today. Uh, so the radical Republicans have gotten, in many ways, a bad uh, historical press, and this book goes a long way to reversing that, to enriching and, and uh, guiding our understanding of those who were at the forefront of these political and social issues in their time. Uh, the book is called When It Was Grand, The Radical Republican History of the Civil War. The author has been our guest tonight, Leanna Keith. Leanna, I enjoyed the book. Thank you for uh, uh, joining me on the show and talking about it. Well, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of this show. It's a great body of work. I'm so glad to be included. Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.